right, you know what that sound means. I am Mitch Maley, and this is the Brightened Times podcast. We've got a special midweek edition this week as we try to get all of our local candidates. We've invited everybody who's in a competitive race uh, locally on the August ballot to come in. And our guest today is Sean Conley. Sean is running for the District 4 Manatee County School Board seat, and he's running its incumbent, Chad Choate. And the way school board races run to... Uh, make sure everybody remembers that is they're nonpartisan and everybody who runs runs on the August ballot. And in most races, there'll be more than two competitors and then there needs to be a runoff and that happens in November. But this race, very important if you live in District 4, there's only two candidates. So whoever wins in August will be your school board rep. So if you're the kind of person that doesn't always vote in the primary, these are the kind of races that you miss out having your voice count in this one. So very important. Thanks for joining us today, Sean. No problem. My pleasure. Hey, uh, so another guy who's a military vet like myself, like some of the other candidates, um, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and what you've done? So I was uh, born and raised here in uh, Bradenton. Um, my mom's a Floridian. Her mother was a Floridian. So we oh, go, wow. Yeah, we go back to a Creek Indian and, and a uh, Irish immigrant in the Pensacola area. Uh, but uh, she moved here, and I think it was uh, she was 13 years old. I've uh, been living in the, the Bayshore Gardens area. Um, I did a variety of things uh, after uh, graduating from Southeast High School. I went to MCC uh, on and off, uh, and then finally went up to the University of South Florida and got my degree um, in history, minor anthropology in 1996. Uh, I thought everybody should serve their nation, so I decided at that moment to talk to a Navy recruiter. And uh, from there, I uh, went... And enlisted, uh, spent a little over two years enlisted, got picked up with a officer candidate uh, package, uh, went to OCS in Pensacola, and uh, was commissioned in October of 1998. Uh, I was active duty all the way up until January 2009. Uh, then I joined the military contractor world and bounced around uh, everything from uh, United States Central Command, United States Southern Command, uh, I worked with uh, U.S. Indo Paycom, and I've worked up at Joint Staff uh, J32. What was your field in the military? Um, so my field was cryptology, at least that's what it started out as. Actually, as enlisted, I was an electronic technician, as an officer, as a, a cryptologist. And then they changed that to information warfare. Uh, so I was an information warfare specialist. Um, after uh, leaving the military, I kind of specialized, and I, I did a variety of things, but I'd say the, the area that I was at the most was uh, ISR, Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance, uh, Collection Management. Excellent. Uh, obvious question, what made you think about running for school board? So the, the, the main aspect that uh, the reason why I wanted to run is because of, I, I, I just cannot stand what I consider security vulnerabilities that we have in our, our school system, uh, such as what we saw that happened in Texas. And I, mm -hmm. this has been happening for over 20 years, you know, ever since Columbine, it's been on my mind. And I, I remember when I was raising my son and I, I taught him a bunch of different tech uh, tactics, techniques and procedures to do to help keep him safe while he was in school. If a gunman ever get, came in, uh, I just can't stand the fact that I still haven't seen a lot of the, what I consider basic tenants uh, that the military uses for force mm -hmm. protection not being adopted by schools. I know that some of them can't be, but at the same time, there's plenty of, of ways to make this uh, a safer environment 
And I, I know that the school boards and school districts, they, they hire police officers. And, you know, my dad was a police officer. My brother is currently a police officer. I have complete respect for him. But there's, there's a difference when you're talking with force protection and the way that police uh, look at a problem set and the way I would as a military member, uh, especially since I had to secure buildings after 9-11 uh, on a base. So the base security was similar to what we'd expect was the police force. And uh, I had to deal with uh, building security, uh, building force uh, protection, as well as security aspects with security management within the building. I think that's a uh, similarity a lot, uh, what you'd see in a school type situation. And so I think I could lend myself and do a vulnerability assessment and basically find these weak points and then be able to advise, if nothing else, I'd be a different voice on a school board to advise security aspects as well as my uh, ability in deep dive analysis as a the senior intelligence uh, officer on board a ship, you know, we do a, the a analytical aspect. So I could do deep dive analysis on any problems that the school board is looking at. Uh, so I could I could lend a hand everywhere across the board. Let me, uh, and it's interesting you say that. I was actually, I was driving by and got rerouted when Columbine happened. I was out at uh, Fort Carson. And uh, I was up in Aurora that afternoon um, at a sparring session. I was on the Army boxing team, and it was a sparring session with a, a non-military athlete I knew up there. And uh, it was a crazy thing. Like, all of a sudden, lights going everywhere, and you know, roads are closed, and we're getting rerouted. And I had no idea until I could find it on the radio what was happening. Uh, so it was, it was always a, a weird uh, memory for me, that, that seminal event of that first of what would become an all-too-common incident. Uh, and then, you know, seeing to the point where it how normalized and almost became, oh, another school shooting, another school shooting, where, where like you could tell society was getting numb to it of, of the, the, that horrible, you know, first reaction to Columbine. And as it continued and continued and continued, it was becoming increasingly normalized. And then this most recent one in Parkland, oh my God, like the, uh, the security failures right were just enormous yeah like like inexcusable so can you talk more specifically about some of the basic things that you see that aren't being done that would be sort of easy wins in that department so uh, yes I, I, i'll mention a couple of them like uh, off the, the cuff um so we're looking at the fact that you, you look at texas but you can look at the, the one that happened here in florida a couple of years ago uh, and to me, the, the biggest thing you have to do is you have to make sure that your security force is better familiar with the, the area that there might be a problem in. So like when, even though I worked when I was uh, after 9-11, I worked in a building that was considered extremely secure as a top secret facility. Uh, I had to make sure that the, the building was safe. Uh, but to, to make sure that the security forces knew what to do, I had to introduce them into the space and have them walk through it and understand, you know, where the exits were, where, where we, you know, might hold up at all these little parts. And I think at the base level, why is it the patrol uh, sergeant having his people come into the schools at least once a week to walk it for a half hour to understand the layout of the school, understand uh, how things might unfold? You know, they, they do do drills, but drills only get you so far. Uh, and then, to be honest, I kind of have some issues with the way that uh, most uh, 
these drills are done because in the military we like to know we like to say train like you fight and fight like you train um and i don't think that's always the case of what's going on when they're doing their training events um and at a bare minimum just to have that familiarity would increase the, the survivability and increase the the response force uh that goes into a school but there's other things i remember when i like i said when i was teaching my son like okay you know if something bad goes down, if that door opens in, have everybody empty out their, their coins in their, their uh, pocket and shove them in the door frame. Because coins are, are cards or whatever inside of a metal frame with a metal door, they're not going to be able to open the door. You know, you don't have to put all the desk in front of the, the doorway, but you can still jam a doorway. There's other simple, you know, uh, cost-efficient ways to improve our security that go beyond what I think is happening because they're, they're thinking from the perspective of law enforcement, you know, and I got to admit that as a military guy, we get trained uh, and we can get where we're only thinking in one area too. Um, but I think I've had a unique opportunity to see things done in a variety of uh, areas and I, and we had to grow with it. You know, I was in DC when nine 11 happened uh, trying to get into uh, O&I, the Office of Naval Intelligence. And when that event went down, and the, like, the whole world changed. You know, I left D.C., uh, drove back um, to Norfolk, back to my command, and that's the only time I've ever seen practically every ship at naval uh, base, like, it was empty. Yeah. You're talking the largest naval base in the world, and every ship scrambled out of there except for the ones that couldn't get underway because they had either some repairs going on or they had some type of uh, activity that kept them like maybe they were in dry dock. So to go from that and then figure out the force protection before they even had, had made the changes. So we were making changes and we were uh, deciding on stuff on the fly that we implemented. And then once big DOD, Department of Defense, came up with, you know, new constructs and new uh, ideas on it. Then we adopted those and we developed those. Uh, but that initial year, we were, we were doing it all on our own. And that innovation happens that way. And I think because of that type of situation, I, I have a more innovative uh, ideas on things than some other people might have. Are there non-personnel ways that we can harden schools that we're not taking advantage of and, and make it more difficult? There's plenty of non-personnel ways that we could, you know, I was giving a, like I was talking to this uh, friend of mine and I said, like the door problem, like it's so simple and there's a way to do it where you can still. You do an immediate lockdown somewhere, can't you? Yeah. Like a one button lockdown for the well, whole. Well, you could, you could, you could do that, but say financially that you were not able to have uh, magnetic locks and readers and you know, all that. Uh, a simple cleat, you know, those $1.99 cleats. You put one on the door, you put one on the, the frame of the door, and you get a piece of rope. You teach the teacher how to basically, like you would tie off a boat, mm -hmm. you know. You tie off the, the frame, you tie off the door, and they can't open it out or in. They may have, like, a gap, which would actually be useful right, right. for when they do come into the school. A, you know, a police officer, when he's clearing it, can easily cut it. But an armed assailant's not going to sit there and say, let me pull out my pocket right, knife right. and try to cut through this rope. Yeah, a lot of times just putting the tiniest like blocks in front of the runner can yeah. trip them up. Yeah. 
And like, you know, and there's others, other silly things we can do off the top. Again, just off the top of my head, you know, a little soap and water on a slip, you know, <laughs> slick area right outside the door might be a way to save your life. You know, right, uh, right. you don't necessarily have to have uh, expensive technology. Expensive technology. You just have to think outside the bubble and have plans in place and training done. Right. And and these training things, these training events need to happen. Not just of course, was law enforcement, but they need to happen with the teachers uh, in a constructive way that makes them feel safe within that school environment and lets them know there's more options out there than just just what they've been told, you know. And and I'm just one person, but I'm sure if we if we had that type of innovative uh, discussion with the teachers, they'd go, "Hey, how about this? How why can't we do this?" You know, and tailor it for that area. You know, uh, and even when something goes wrong, okay, do the law enforcement enforcement officers in that area know where the meeting zones are? All right, so they're going to fall out. Where they're going to go to? Uh, how they're going to react? You know, is there any uh, uh, secure words that are being used to identify the teachers? So when you enter that building and you go identify yourself, are they going? You know, Robin Hood, Robin Hood, which means that they're 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 an actual teacher. You know, that should be something that changes. We have those type of uh, situations in the military where we, we know when somebody's in distress because they will let us know through certain code procedures. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that's being implemented. You know, to be honest, I don't know everything that is because whenever you're doing security like that, they're not going to te- uh, sure. you sure. know tell us all about it. But I have a strong feeling that there's plenty of areas for improvement. Okay. What are some other areas uh, within the school district and education um, that are part of your platform and that you're interested in uh, rolling your sleeves up and getting to work on should you be elected? Well, I mean, we can always look at where, where America needs, you know, growth, where we're losing ground is in the STEM area. You know, we need to have science and technology and, and math uh, growth. And one of the things that I keep on thinking is, like, I remember – if I cared about a subject, if there was something that intrigued me about the subject, I was more willing to go into it. I was more willing to read about it. I was more willing to participate. Uh, when I was doing research about what the school board's been up to, there was this um, uh, new thing that they're doing out at Anna Maria Elementary School where they're partnering with Guy Harvey, and they're going to do a uh, marine biology thing. I'm like, oh, my God, would I have loved to have done that as a kid? Uh, would have just opened a whole world for me with that type of thing, because I was all into Jacques Cousteau. I was all into the ocean. Uh, and that's the type of things that you got to do. You got to develop programs and you got to have opportunities where these kids will go, hey, I'm really into this. And th- this week we're, you know, we're writing on, uh, you know, music. So maybe that's the, the thing that triggers them. And so maybe you, you look at, okay, we're going to write a history paper on Jimi Hendrix and uh, we're going to you know, do some reading on his life. There's ways to get kids involved and get their minds going that I, I think that we, if we look closer, we can find these opportunities and still stay within the state boundaries of what the cur- curriculum is supposed to be to, to ensure that we still have that funding. Okay. There has been a lot of financial issues with the Manatee County School District. Uh, you know, we could trace it all the way back to the, 2012 um, era when, you know, the public found out that 
they what they had thought was a surplus in the budget uh, and everything is is rosy. Uh, presentation was actually cookbooks and we were turned out to be tens of millions of dollars in debt, not the six or seven that they initially acknowledged. Uh, took most of a decade to begin to recover from financial mismanagement. We've gone through several, uh, three superintendents and I want to say four or five interim superintendents since that time, since that resignation. And we're now, you know, we just extended the extra millage point on taxes. We, prior to that, extended for another 15 years, the extra half cent. There are a lot of residents who are wondering if they're getting the best value for that investment. Um, there've been a couple of scandals in the district during that same time. Uh, what are your thoughts on how the district needs to improve in that area? So I think that's the key aspect of why you have elected officials in this area, it's oversight. So when you have a bureaucracy and it doesn't have a type of uh, designed oversight, you're gonna have errors. And so the school board, to me, one of the, the, the key aspects is the oversight. Um, this is not 1990 anymore. There's big data tools out there to, to let us uh, coalesce all that type of information and data and then be able to pull it apart and find where the vulnerabilities are and the weaknesses are uh, of how we're spending our money. And, uh, you know, the military is big on catching uh, fraud, waste, and abuse. Um, so I've done it before, you know, as an officer, uh, but I've also done it as an analyst where we're doing uh, analytical work and we're looking at companies, our individuals, uh, basically, especially when I was doing counter-narcotic uh, intelligence, uh, we're looking because the money oftentimes will lead you to the entities or uh, corporations that might not be real. They might be shells. So uh, that type of financial aspect uh, is out there and we there's tools out there. We just need to do a better job as uh, a school board to make sure that we don't have those type of uh, fraud and abuse type situations. Now, one of the things, unfortunately, in my opinion, is that school board politics, school district politics, schools in general, have increasingly become a battlefield in this culture war that we're entrenched in as a country. We've seen that in our own local school board during COVID. Uh, we've seen that even you know with some other issues on the curriculum uh statewide we're having laws passed that are impacting you know the way school districts can uh perform do you have any thoughts on how we get better as a community in maybe reversing that process and coming back to the idea that we're all people who live here and invest in a public education system how do we focus more intently on that rather than the political aspects of it? So, I mean, there's a bunch of different aspects that to me uh, are very difficult to overcome. The culture, cultural aspects you're talking about, the partisan aspects, they've, they've become extremely rampant. Uh, and really the, the tolerance that people have to listen to the other side is, is falling off. Uh, and, and to me, the best way to do that is you have to, you have to, as a voter, look towards those people that are moderates because that's what we need again. We need the, the moderates to come back, the ones that are willing to reach across the aisle and talk and work together. 
you know, this is a nonpartisan position, but everybody has some political uh, or at least some ideas of how uh, if they're conservative or liberal, um, they are. But the willingness to work together is what this country was founded on. It wasn't the exclusion. You know, we, the Constitution was like, no, we're going to do it my way or the highway. It's no, let's come up with a solution that we can all agree on and all consign to uh, as, as the 13 colonies. And we have to basically teach that into the, the, the kids that are, are growing up. Uh, and we need to, to push events that have that type of uh, environment. Um, I was amazed that when I put my name in the hat for this, how quickly the partisan groups came at me. And I'm like, I'm nonpartisan. I'm not going to do any partisan type events. And uh, some of them were like, oh, we're not really partisan. I'm like, yeah, you are. It's in the name, right? <laughs> I'm like, uh, so, you know, uh, I respectfully decline. I'm only going to do what's a group that openly says that they're nonpartisan, that openly embraces that nonpartisan aspect, uh, because I think we should work together. We're all in this country together. We're all, you know, this county. We should set aside some of this silly politics stuff and let's try and find some common grounds and try to figure out how to come together as a community. The aspect of uh, military service, as a veteran, that's something that, that always interests me because I know that it was like the primary uh, experience in my life that gave me, more than college, gave me the skills that I needed to succeed in life. Um, you know, from basic training to... Uh, airborne school to, you know, my uh, uh, branch course and all those different things, um, learning discipline, learning self-motivation, learning, you know, uh, how to expect more of yourself than, you know, you might have previously and learning through hard work how you can exceed your own limits that you've put on yourself. Um, and then everything else kind of seeming easier afterward. I tell this story a lot that I remember in jump school, there was a Navy SEAL that was in my class, real funny guy. And uh, it was a, you know, was a, I went in August and it was like, you know, 98 degree, you know, awful, right? Yeah. And uh, you've got that uh, uh, sawdust all in all, all your t-shirts, you can't get them out. And he goes, you know what this is for? And I said, what? He goes, this is so that someday you're going to be sitting in an office somewhere and some guy in a tie is going to drop a big stack of papers and say, hey, you don't get to leave until all these are done. <laughs> and you're just going to laugh because you're going to be sitting in an air-conditioned office in comfortable shoes with paper in front of you and saying, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Makes everything easier. Um, but what it also, I think, is important is it gives you this, this mindset of service. Of, and you said you know, that was what drove you to enlist. Um, the idea that we're a community and that you have to invest in your community, you have to participate on some level to, to, uh, in order for that community to thrive. How does that inform... Uh, you know, your your desire to now serve in public office. Does it come so, from the same place? Yeah, I mean, the, the real thing is when you start serving and you, like you said, you learn to overcome so many obstacles. You learn so many things that you thought were large or not all that large. Uh, you learn that um, together as a team, you can do so much more. And and being a leader and being a team member and being an active participant in the military really teaches you some awesome lessons that can, can be utilized in the civilian world. 
And I think uh, serving, once you, once you got it in your blood, it's hard to get out of your blood. So, you know, I want to serve. Uh, uh, I, I don't want to drive back and forth to Tampa, to be honest. <laughs> I would like to find a way to serve uh, my country and my, my citizens here. Uh, and I, so I, I chose a way to do that. I was searching for something. Um, unfortunately, I lost my father uh, with cancer early in the year. So I stopped working in Tampa and I uh, uh, was taking care of him 24 seven. And uh, when that resolved itself, when he passed, uh, to be honest, I was kind of lost. I'm like, I need to find some place where I can be assistance to people. And uh, so one of the things that popped in my head was teaching. And um, so I, I did go back to where I was uh, taking class at the SCF. Uh, I, I'm interested in also going back and getting uh, a master's degree. Before I had ever talked to that uh, Navy recruiter, I, I had an interest in getting a doctoral degree. I wanted to, to teach at the, um, the college level because I had already been teaching at the, uh, you know, middle schools and elementary schools and high schools as a substitute teacher. And there's a lot of aspects that I liked about it, but I, I liked that higher level uh, learning part that I wanted to be able to, to uh, do. Um, and so that's, that was my original grand plan. And then 9-11 kind of threw it all off. Uh, but I, I definitely believe that I have the itch to, to serve and help the people around me. Uh, and I won't feel whole unless I'm doing something along that lines. I'm sorry to hear about your father. Um, I think one of the things that is increasingly uh, maybe having an impact on our society, I, I mentioned this to someone a little while back that I noticed in the obituaries in our paper there was a certain era where almost everyone who died, maybe like 10 years ago, always had a record of service. Um, there was almost an of bits that didn't have a flag on them uh, just because of the, the time in our, in our country. It, you know, it, was, it was just likely that they'd served in World War II or Korea um, when you look at the percentage of people. Uh, with the modern warfare, with force reduction, um, for a lot of reasons, our military as personnel-wise, um, not kept up with that proportion of, of service in terms of the portion of population. Do you think that that has something to do with some of our cultural problems that less people have had the experience, less of a percentage of our population have had the experience of service and learning the benefits of the teamwork and organizations and so forth? I think that uh, I don't necessarily would equate that, um, that, that that's had a negative impact or a positive in, impact. Uh, I think human beings are human beings. And I mean, you can't take, you can't change the fact that the military service will definitely change you and definitely mm -hmm. make your life completely different. That's, uh, that's a fact. Uh, but there's plenty of other ways that you can do and other things that you can do that makes you grow as a human being. And I still think there's a lot of that that happens. Uh, I, what I think the real shift is that's, that's gone on is basically our communication devices, this instant gratification with in our hand of the phone. You know, if I don't know something, I just ask, ask right, Google. Right. If I don't know where to go someplace, I ask Google. Mm -hmm. So that type of uh, reliance on these devices and not on ourselves is different. Like when we were growing up, 
You didn't know where something was. You pulled out a map. You had to look at right. the map. You couldn't. And if you like, wanted to know something, you had to go all the way downstairs to get the Encyclopedia Britannica. Right. You had to really put some. You had to know it, want to know it bad enough to put some legwork in. Yeah. And you had to actually think about it. So, right. so when you you know you needed to know where that turn was, you had to put it in your head. Yeah, yeah. The little voice from your phone was going to tell you when to turn. Yeah, and then you learn like that. That is true because it, it promotes intellectual laziness on so many levels because there, there's so many places that. Like I'll go in frequently, and if it would have been the old system, I'd have it memorized now. Yeah, but it's just I don't have to. Yeah, tell me, where, tell me when to turn left, and it uh, is uh, it, it is changing. And the other thing that that's really impacting is students, and uh, that's something that you know. Do you have any children? I have uh, kids and grandkids. Um, right now, with my girlfriend, we have uh, her daughter living with us, as well as three grandchildren living with us. So, and they're in school, uh, you know, I, I get a good dose of what's yeah. going on. I have an 18 year old son. I gotta be honest. Like this is the first time in history that I can really say, or, excuse me, in my lifetime that I could really not have any envy for the young. Like, <laughs> like honestly, so many other times like, Oh, look at the cool stuff they have. Oh, that would have been cool to grow up then. Or, and now it's like, no, thanks. Wouldn't want it for all the money in the world. When I look at how, digitally uh, disconnected they seem to be, uh, the amount of social pressure that seems to come with it, um, the, the less of like uh, social skills and like actual community that seems to be built as a result of the virtual communities replacing it, which there really is no um, substitute for in my opinion. Uh, do you think that that's going to be something that in, continues to impact classrooms, and that's something we're going to have to adapt to if, if these phones continue to dominate every area of our life? Yeah, it definitely needs to be something that's addressed and something that's looked at. And, and we need to basically have some type of uh, tiger team, subject matter experts that look at ways to help mitigate some of these problems and help give not only the teachers and administrators the tools, but the, the, the actual parents the tools to deal with this. I think a large part of this problem is the fact that we didn't grow up in this era, and so we, we, we can't quite communicate correctly to, to assist our children going through it. Uh, I think as we move forward with, with them, yeah, yeah, they will be at a different level. They're going to understand it. They're going to be able to uh, have uh, better guidance for their children. It was just such a huge leap forward that so we, fast, were, we were, yeah. yeah, we were caught off guard. And that's happened before. Mm -hmm. If you've got to think of the way it was before the automobile and then the automobile. Right. You know, there's generational things that happen with technology that, ha that impact society in ways that we can't predict. And then the parents have a hard time understanding why, you know, why things are so different. And that's where we're at. With our age group, we're just like, we, like, we don't get it. Well, and that's, <laughs> you're right in the sense that it used to be generational. Like it used to be this, like I explained to my son once, I was like, one generation had the album, the next one had the cassette, the next one had the CD. Now you guys have seven of those in two years. Like, yeah. so the rapidity at which it's accelerating is, is shocking. And it makes, it makes it so that like, imagining the future is impossible. Like it used to be, you know, you we're still waiting for flying cars, I guess, but like there, there was this kind of like, you know, someday this will get better or that'll get better. But now it's like, who knows where, where we're going to be in 10 years when you look at where, what technology has advanced in the previous 10. 
Well, I mean, I like to look at that type of stuff. Uh, when I was doing this one job was uh, uh, big data science stuff for the Department of Defense. I was not only looking at big data software, but I was looking at uh, the next big thing. And so when you're looking at the next big thing and you're looking at where technology is going, you can see all these advantages. I still think that the, you know, kids, kids have it lucky, actually. There's, there's, there's so much out there. There's so, more, so much more opportunity. Um, but I also, I take a global perspective. I mean, we as Americans so often only look to America. But when you look globally, oh, my God, we are so fortunate. Oh, you no know. question. <laughs> um, and there's, there's areas where these countries, they're going from basically uh, donkey power to having a cell phone in their pocket right. that has, tech, you know, those parents. <laughs> now, I feel for that's those. A I mean, right? yeah, yeah, that's a s severe challenge. I think we're still at such a huge advantage. Uh, we just got to get better at working together. And I think that's the real thing that's, that's fallen down. That's the real area that we could improve to make our lives better, make our children's lives better, is just communicate better. And we have the tools. These tools are actually great tools for communication if they're used properly. You know, the, the problems are not being used properly, and there's no repercussions for when they are being used inappropriately. Like uh, one of the emails I got from uh, once I started running, the individual sent me something that I thought was extremely inappropriate. And he basically asked me if I would join the Navy to enslave Americans or to free them. And I'm thinking, if you had the balls to say this in front of me, I might actually have the balls to punch you in the nose over <laughs> it. You know what I mean? Because it was a, it was a complete insult the way it was written. And I'm like, but your anonymity of being yeah. on an email is why you did. That's it. been a big problem, I think, in society is that we now have years of this ability to. It, it sort of, I think, dehumanizes the people around us because we don't see them as a three-dimensional human being with a life and a family and feelings. We just see them as a digital avatar. And then as a result, we talk to them in a way that we never would, even out of, you know, fear or human kindness or whatever, like it pulls people's, you know, humanity, like, like temporarily out of them in, in so many ways. I, I obviously as an opinion columnist, I have had some horrible things said about me uh, online in the comment sections and stuff like that. And it's the same thing. It's like, wow, the, the aggression and the yeah. like desire to hurt and the, you know, and then, then like you said, and the, the, I know you wouldn't say this, not only because, you know, to use your phrase, I'd punch you in the nose, but the, uh, the reality is that most people aren't mean when they're in front of another human being. It takes right. a lot for most people to usually get there. And it certainly isn't with somebody that they've never even met or even known unless they have some serious psychological problems. But for some reason, you give them this digital avatar and we behave in ways that are just absolutely foreign to what's you know historically acceptable. Yes, I, I, exactly. And the thing is, I'm not a violent person. I don't go around punching people. Right. For, <laughs> no, I, I go with the old adage, you know, uh, uh, sticks and stones may break my right, bones, right. but words will never harm me. So if somebody was to say that, I'd probably just shake it off and say, whatever, you're an idiot. Um, and, and the thing is, but the willingness to actually go and yeah. say that is so different in person. And, and the problem in school is like the bullying, there's, there's, we grew up with bullying that's face-to-face. -face. Schoolyard, right. Yeah, and that's a harder bully to be. 
Yeah. It's yeah. hard to be that bully, but to be the avatar, the online mm -hmm. bully, it is so easy. And these kids, you know, will go, will go in class and they won't get that type. They may get a little tension. They may get a little bullying, but it's not like overwhelming. And then they come home or they walk out of the classroom and turn on their devices and it's been amplified by a thousand. Mm -hmm. That's the insanity that they have to deal with. And that's the hard part for, uh, you know, not just our teachers and administrators, but of course, our parents. Parents have to figure out ways to protect their child yeah. in this digital way that we never thought we would. Yeah, and it's, it's not ever as simple as, you know, I always had screen time prohibitions and different stuff in the house, but then there's a fine line between how much you can protect them from that and then you're socially isolating them because there, there almost is no socialization outside of that. So it become, and, and you know, to boot, to your point, we don't understand it as well. You know right. what I mean? It's, it's a weird thing. Um, but one of the things that, that I find instructive on that is that I notice that my son and my nieces and nephews, the amount of nostalgia that they seem obsessed with in some of their entertainment, I think is very telling. And I think it speaks to the, to the fact that like a show like Stranger Things or something set in the 80s doesn't have that. And there's kids riding bikes and knocking on front doors in the way that we used to do. And I remember my kid, I think he was like 12 when the first season came out. And he's like, you guys used to do that? You just, just like <laughs> ride your bike to somebody's house and knock on it. He's like, yes, it was, it was all you did. Yeah. You know, you just go out in a day with your bike and a pack. Like, yeah, that was every summer. Um, and they look at this with, with a longing, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I don't know how we put the genie back in the bottle of, of tech and cell phones. I think, like you said, I think they are going to have to, uh, and it's, unfair in that regard because it's like we're the generation that put it in their hands but they're going to have to figure out how to put them down i think yes yeah, so you're completely right on that and and i think the the other thing is is we got to give we got to as parents we got to work and give our kids the tools to cope with this type of stuff and to be able to express or come to us when things are getting really bad mm -hmm. um and like no kid really wants to go to mom and dad on stuff we we get that but at the same time when things get overwhelming, they need to. And uh, there's ways that we can do that as parents to make sure that they understand that we're, we're there for them and that all this silly, you know, bullying online, it's not, doesn't mean a hill of beans, you know. Um, and that's, that goes with perspective. And we need to figure out ways to give them a better perspective. It's kind of like, you know, the reason why, I mean, we look back at that stuff fondly, but at the same time, uh, I remember being like, okay, yeah, I'm outside riding my bike and stuff because my grandmother said, get out of the house, you're making too much noise, right. <laughs> and lock the door. Right. <laughs> you're not coming back in until later. Go wear yourself out, and I'll come find you if I need to, kind of a mentality. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of changed, but uh, there's ways that we can we can look to, to assist our kids. And every kid's going to be different. Every parent's going to be different. So they got to find that on their own, unfortunately. So that's the real key thing is find out what works for you and your kid and then, and develop and reevaluate yourself. Say this is working, but this isn't. So I'm going to shift. I'm going to lean a little bit more this way. There was a uh, interesting to that point. Um, I went and heard uh, Jonathan Haidt. He wrote the coddling of the American mind. He's a social psychologist and he was speaking at a Tampa theater and he talked about how they're seeing data now that the, what he called hyper uh, safetyism of, you know, bad news stories and, you know, the, the 
he went through you know the long list of things that have never happened, like the razor blades and the apples, the Halloween, and all these different things. But the idea that we used to empower children at a younger age to become independent and not realizing how much resilience that built when they had to kind of just, hey, work it out. You got cousin punch your nose, go outside, work it out, like that sort of thing. Um, but the idea that we taught another generation, you know, oh, you can't be 14 and babysit your nine-year-old, like that, that, that would be inappropriate. Um, you know, oh, you can't come home. Lashkey kids, you know, we had an entire generation of them in the past without incident. And it's like, oh, you can't do that anymore. You'll go to jail. You know, that's, that's, a, a, that's a parental neglect. Um, and he said that, you know, some of the net effect of this is that you are kind of teaching the kids. And he goes, and the ironic part is, it's the safest time ever to live in America. Because if you look at any of these things, violent crime, abduction, all these things per capita, they're at their all time lows. Like we live in the safest America that's really existed in modern time. And instead of that being the feeling and us moving in the opposite direction and giving them more things to make them resilient, this hyper safetyism teaches them, no, 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 there is a threat around every corner. And I need you to text, if you're walking down Jimmy's house, that's a block away, text me as soon as you get there, okay? Let me know that you're in the house. And then I want you to text me when you're leaving so I can look out for you. And he's like, is there any wonder that <laughs> child anxiety is off the charts if, if we're teaching a generation that, hey, you can get kidnapped, you can get anything, have your phone, I need to know, I need to have my hand real close to you, compared to work it out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a huge difference, but that, that comes down to how, I mean, there are certain legal aspects we gotta uh, deal with, but there's so many more things that we can do to help our kids and help empower them. So uh, the three granddaughters I have in the house, um, you know, I don't, I don't babysit that type of mentality. You know, when they're going down the street, they're going to their friend's house. What I did is I was like, okay, to protect yourself, where do you strike? Somebody's attacking you. And I go, eyes, throat, groin, right. you know? And it's like, you, there is no mercy. You know, if somebody's attacking you, you need to get away and you need to do whatever you can to, to make yourself safe. So giving them ways to de defend themselves. Because when we were kids and we were out there doing stupid stuff, you know, we knew that bad things happen, right. you know, but we had a pocket knife, <laughs> right. you know, we, we, we had a plan of action. Me and my friends were like, you know, when we would go into the woods, we were prepared not only to fight the, the alligator or the snake that might come across our path, but the hobo that might, you know, try to, right, to abuse right. us. You know, I remember um, very well getting my first buck knife at 12. <laughs> yeah, I remember sharpening sticks right. to no point before we walked into the woods to go right. play, you know. Uh, and growing up here in Florida, I remember making milk jug uh, floats, going on the, the uh, lakes out there and going, if an alligator comes close, we're, you know, stab it in the eyes. Go that, for the I'll, eyes. I'll tell you what, that's <laughs> something that I can't even get my head around to this day, growing up in a place where, you know, coming from up north, I've been down here 20 years, but still the idea that when I first got here and it was like, wait, wait, what? The lakes have prehistoric monsters in them. <laughs> like that's what it is. It's a prehistoric monster that just like eats things. And uh, you've got, you know, up there, the worst thing that could happen to you is, you know, a mosquito bite <laughs> situation. Oh. You know, we have water moccasins and uh, down here, we have all these things. Um, the lakes were very safe. So <laughs> totally different thing. But, but you got trained. It's like, so when, yes, my, yes. So, so when my son was growing up and, uh, you know, I was stationed in Jacksonville and there was a retaining pond 
nearby and we'd walk it. And so I taught him basically how to look for the uh, slides where alligators come and leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, don't how to approach an actual lake. Uh, don't assume that the waters are, always assume there's an alligator there. Always assume that the alligator knows you're there. Uh, but there's, there's ways to say this is the more dangerous part of the lake than that. Because that's where the animal comes down to, to get its water. And that's why, you know, the, the alligator is going to be right there. Uh, there's all sorts of things that you learn when you're in that type of environment. And I got taught them, and I survived. And so I did the same thing with my son. Uh, but I don't think that happens a lot now. You know, you got to, one, you got to walk outside and walk the lakes and right. walk the rivers with your kids and teach them, like, okay, yeah, that's a banded water snake, and that's a water moccasin. And that one, you know, you don't have to worry about pushing them out of your way. That one right there will kill you. Right. <laughs> All right, Sean, where can our listeners learn more about you? Do you have a website, Facebook? I have a Facebook account, and I also have a, a blog that I started. Um, it's candidate.conley. Uh, I wish I, I could remember the, the blog part a little bit well, better. <laughs> if you send it to me, I'll put it in a link with yes, the uh, I'll give you the, the, the information. Um, I have not created a, a website yet, and, of course, I am definitely at a financial disadvantage in all this. I still haven't figured out how these uh, guys uh, get their donations. I'm just winging it on my own, out of my own pocket uh, and just uh, doing the Facebook friends thing. You know? Well, they don't usually get them in a great way, in my experience. So <laughs> seeing a grassroots candidate is always favorable, at least to my mind. And uh, also seeing somebody who is decidedly nonpartisan is music to my ears, particularly on the school board, where I think the partisanship really, really needs to be abated. Um, but it's been a pleasure talking with you today. I'd encourage our listeners to check him out. Again, this is Sean Connolly. He is running for the Manatee County District 4 school board seat, um, which is uh, most of South County, correct? Yes, it's, it's basically if you go from uh, Telavas Road up to, I think it's uh, a little bit past Cortez, over to where the Publix is over on 70th, uh, uh, 44th around there. And then uh, going towards IMG, shortly after IMG, the, uh, was it, Lee Middle School right there, it, it ends, so. At three, yeah. So this is, again, can't stress this enough, this race, if you live in District 4, you could always go to votemanatee.com, Supervisor Elections site, and see what districts you're in. Uh, but this race only has two candidates, which means if you do not vote in the August primary, you will not have a say in who your representative on the board is. And to remind you, the board has a billion-dollar budget, pretty much, that it oversees, nearly a billion dollars, and it's the largest employer in Manatee County. So a very important organization. Uh, And at the end of the day, this is who's keeping our kids safe. This is who's educating our kids and informing them with with values and everything like that. So a few races could be more important. Don't forget to uh, vote on August 23rd or vote early. Again, all that information at votemanatee.com. This has been the Bradenton Times podcast. As always, I ask you to Think about clicking on the right side at thebradentontimes.com and doing a voluntary $7 a month donation to help us continue providing you comprehensive election coverage every time out. And we'll see you next week.